Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk, where we discuss the latest science and opinions from leading voices in integrative oncology. Integrative oncology utilizes complementary therapies and lifestyle strategies to help those affected by cancer using personalized approaches and evidence-based recommendations. Dr. Santos Schrau, a medical oncologist and integrative oncologist, hosts this podcast with support from Society for Integrative Oncology, an international multidisciplinary organization whose mission is to advance the science and education of integrative oncology worldwide. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect views of the participants' workplace or SIO and are not meant to offer medical advice. The information, opinions, and recommendations in the podcast are for general information only. Before making any changes in your healthcare or lifestyle, please discuss with your healthcare provider. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Nolani Chilkoff, a licensed acupuncturist and a leading-edge authority and pioneer in the field of integrative cancer care, cancer prevention, and immune enhancement. She is the founder of the American Institute of Integrative Oncology and IntegrativeCancerAnswers.com uh, and the author of a number one best-selling book, 32 Ways to Outsmart Cancer, How to Create a Body Where Cancer Cannot Thrive. Dr. Chilkov brings over 30 years of clinical experience combining the best of functional medicine and oriental medicine. She has lectured at the School of Medicine at UCLA and UC Irvine in California and the Medical Academy in London in the UK. She's featured as a cancer expert on tapintegrative.com, NBC TV, and has been recognized as one of the top 10 online influencers for breast cancer by Dr. Oz and WebMD. She has a private practice in Santa Monica, California. Today, we'll be focusing on truly collaborative integrative care. What does it look like when it's working? And we'll also talk about traditional Chinese medicine and how it fits in integrative oncology care. Welcome to Integrative Oncology Talk. I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Nolani Chilkoff, who's a licensed acupuncturist and uh, really expert in the field of integrative oncology with a lot of experience um, and a lot of different uh, areas of interest and impacts in the field. So thank you so much, Nalini, for joining us today. I'm delighted to be here. So there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about because you do a lot of different things and you you have a certain approach to integrative oncology that's um, that's very uh, diverse, but also is not just academic. It's both academic, practical, educational. Uh, and so I think that, you know, uh, you bring a certain perspective that I think is really important for us to um, to include and, and, and hear about. Let's start from where you got started and how you got started in, in your interest in uh, traditional Chinese medicine and, and where your career evolved from there. Well, uh, I originally had a degree in cell biology and then went into nursing. So I have that side, uh, which uh, allows physicians I work with to find me credible. But I actually used traditional Chinese medicine since the time I was a teenager. I grew up in Los Angeles, and there's a very famous Chinese medical family that uh, was nearby to where I grew up. And I told my mom that's who I wanted my doctor to be. So I actually utilized this kind of medicine from the time that I was young. And it was just more congruent to me because fundamentally within traditional Chinese medicine is a health model. It's sort of a, a inherent paradigm of preventive medicine and of wellness. And there's in the old Chinese texts, the superior physician was the doctor whose patients were well. And so if, and there are traditions of keeping people well and um, seeing the whispers where, where they're tipping away from their health so that you can intervene early. And so it's not fundamentally a pathology model. It's fundamentally a health model, which I think is a, a framework that we really need to have in oncology so that we're not just focused on fascination with tumors, but also the ecology and biosystem of the patient and how we can actually enhance good outcomes and change prognoses because we have a bigger model that we're operating from. So you got interested in that as a teenager? 
I did. I was I was fascinated by natural medicine as a teenager. I also uh, was, started to meditate at that time in my life. So that sort of idea of self-regulation and that we can have real agency and impact our health, our well-being, our state of being uh, sort of a part of who I am. And I feel that's really important to give patients a sense of agency that they can really impact the trajectory of their health and their disease as well. I think what you said, uh, you know, many of us in the field of integrative oncology can relate to is that we have a disease model in our, you know, Western medical system rather than a health model and, and an idea of what it is to be healthy. And um, I think some of the traditional medical systems um, have really delved into that much deeper than we have. One thing I'm, I'm curious about, you know, there's other, you know, systems around the world like Ayurveda, et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, they have different ways of explaining, um, you know, the depth of our being. You know, there's uh, obviously in traditional Chinese medicine, you have, you know, the different, uh, you know, systems and you have the meridians and then, you know, obviously the discussion of qi and there's uh, there's a certain cultural basis for it as well um, in cultural understanding of our place in the universe. How do you feel that translates to people who are outside of that cultural um, background or, or do you think it's important for people to to have a sense of where this fits in from a cultural standpoint uh, how translatable is it to people who may not have much understanding of, of that and how important is all that I think that traditional systems of medicine uh, actually help us to get out of our reductionist thinking and I think it's it's important not to get lost in the language of doshas and meridians. I don't think that's that should be a barrier. If you've studied those those systems and you practice them, you utilize them. But from outside, say an oncologist knowing that I do Chinese medicine, it doesn't matter that they know anything about meridians. What I the value that we bring when we understand these other systems of looking at a human being's predicament in their health are the bigger concepts. I think that's where the value is. And we shouldn't get lost in the minutia of semantics, uh, but to, uh, that all these systems are actually looking at the same thing, at the human being's challenge in their life to thrive. And so uh, the cultural viewpoints are useful because that's how we learn from each other. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree. I, I'm curious, um, you've done teaching in various universities, UCLA, UC Irvine, etc. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what, what you did and in what context? And I'm curious how it was received and, and what your experience has been in, in, over time uh, as to how uh, integrative oncology, TCM, how that's been viewed uh, now versus, you know, maybe 20 years ago. Well, first of all, I practice in California, which is a open culture, tolerant of diversity and diverse points of view. So uh, that's also true of the universities here and uh, much, much more open to new ideas than some of the more conservative institutions on the East Coast. But I think it, it my experience in uh, going into more traditional settings or working with clinicians, uh, oncologists in particular in the last 20 years is very much its character logic. Some people are open-minded and collaborative and some people are not. And, you know, whether you're a medical doctor or an acupuncturist or, uh, you know, uh, an accountant, it doesn't matter. It, it's, a, it's a quality of certain uh, people to be interested in things they don't know about and to collaborate with other people. And so we have to find each other. And so that is really what I've found is fruitful. I don't think it's useful to try and talk a person who's not at all interested into embracing what we do. And so I have been invited to teach in uh, university and, and medical school settings by people who are interested in my point of view and want their students to hear it. So uh, at UCLA, they had a program for third and fourth year medical students who are interested in uh, 
looking at other systems of medicine. And I actually, for many years, had medical students observe in my clinic. And they all said the same thing to me, unbeknownst to each other. They all said, wow, you spend a lot of time with your patients. And so um, I think that uh, conventional medicine, the direction it's gone, managed care, the very short visits, you can't in any way develop deep relationships with patients and know who they are and know their own worldview. And so I think one of the great values that we give to our patients is our deep listening and the amount of time we spend with them so that we can actually meet them where they are. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, I have my foot in both uh, fields because I, I practice medical oncology. Yeah. And when, yeah. I, when I have an integrative clinic, I spend a lot of time with my patients. I spend as much time as I can in my medical oncology clinic, but there's just a lot of patients and there's a lot of data and there's a lot of things to, to write, a lot, of, a lot of orders to write, a lot of people to collaborate with, et cetera. And so I think, you know, it is what it is, and it's very important to have people who may be able to get to know uh, different aspects of your patients better, whether it's a psychologist, whether it's a TCM provider, a massage therapist, etc. All these uh, people make a big difference in um, you know, helping us uh, really get to know everything that's, that's going on um, with their patients. I mean, when did you start teaching? You know, in my own experience is that when we were talking about these things in um, in medical schools in the 90s, it was not always well received in my in my world, at least. And um, now it's so different. I also have, you know, medical students and residents who are very interested in uh, shadowing us in clinic and seems to be very well received right now, you know, generally speaking, or at least highly thought of in terms of integrative oncology and people wanting to have experience. When did you see that shift? Well, it's a little hard to say since I'm inside of a community that has embraced this for a long time, you know. Uh, but, you know, maybe I think the seeds of it were planted maybe 20 years ago. And then we started to see integrative uh, health and integrative oncology centers in university settings like the Sims Mann Center at UCLA. But I really... Um, feel that centers in institutional settings are inherently constrained by attorneys. And so what we really want to do, we can't always do in institutional settings. And I have chosen to keep my clinic completely private and independent so I can actually do my thing. So I can actually do everything I want to do with patients and demonstrate my model. And that has also been better for many physicians who refer to me because then they aren't constrained by the most conservative risk averse partner in their practice. And so um, I've been in practice almost 35 years and a good portion of that in Los Angeles. And that means I've developed relationships with a lot of oncologists with whom I've shared patients, whether they've referred the patient to me themselves or the patient found me and now I'm in relationship to that oncologist because of that. But what has happened is that those patients do better. And so you don't have to sell this anymore when the physician can see of their patient population who is getting less adverse effects, who's able to complete their course of treatment, who has a longer time to recurrence or no recurrence at all, who's doing better psychologically because they have a sense of agency uh, that's been given to them, which might have been taken away in the oncology setting. And so once once you sort of hit a critical mass of sharing a lot of patients with oncologists wherever you practice, it stands up on its own because our model provides a health model for the patient. And in, a, in my perfect world, from the moment of diagnosis, every cancer patient would have a disease expert and a health expert right from the beginning. And there would be a, a very individualized plan for their cancer and there would also be an individualized plan for their health because a patient, a cancer patient who's a diabetic needs a different approach than a cancer patient who also has uh, autoimmune disease. And so every patient needs to have individualized care, number one. That's possible in certain settings and not in others. 
But uh, every patient needs both their disease expert and their health expert or their disease team and their health team to actually put a plan together that will allow the patient to do better undergoing their treatment, have less adverse effects, have restoration of healthy function in between their toxic treatments, help them to recover from their surgeries and radiotherapies and chemotherapies, help modulate their immunotherapies so that they can actually complete, successfully complete their treatments, but then recover from their treatments and have a better prognosis after they're, they're done. And then there's a population of patients I think that really doesn't get well taken care of, which is the, the patient who's living with cancer as a chronic illness. Mm-hmm. Those patients are becoming an increasingly large population, and they're really not properly cared for. They really aren't. And with a lot of the newer therapies, which are very pro-inflammatory, it's my experience that oncologists have no training in autoimmune syndromes. And so I've been able to be a great resource to oncologists who are doing immunotherapies and saying, how can we modulate this therapy so that we have a nice burning ember and not a forest fire when you administer these treatments to patients. Yeah, there's not a lot of nuance right now. You know? No, not at all. But, but in, in um, naturopathic medicines, we have a toolbox for that. We have that toolbox. Well, let's get into a couple of those areas. I, I, I want us to just first get a sense, what is your practice like? Um, I have um, a very um, personal practice. Um, I both see patients in my clinic, and I also do telemedicine with patients all over the world. And uh, that would that's on a consulting basis where I review their case and their records and make recommendations to them. Uh, patients who come into my clinic, they get a physical exam. They, uh, I review all the medical records that are relevant to uh, their current situation and look at their past history, want to use the framework of really understanding how they got there, what contributed to them being ill. That's not often not considered in oncology. And uh, also help the patient to have a greater sense of agency. My goal on the first visit is that the patient walks out less anxious than they were walked in. That's my first goal. And to help them understand that it's a team approach in oncology and that they're actually the head of the team and nobody is going to force them to do anything without their permission. And I then put a plan together that has several different parts. I order uh, specialty labs to try to better understand the two microenvironment and the uh, genetic and genomic contributions to the patient's predicament. I uh, have them meet with my nutritionist to understand how to do what I call my outsmart cancer diet, uh, help them to learn how to eat, shop, cook differently. I uh, address their lifestyle and stress and resilience and sleep issues. And I give them uh, foundation nutrition to meet their unique nutritional needs. I put together targeted uh, part of the treatment plan that addresses their tumor type and the adverse effects that they're going to have from their treatments. And then I make sure that there's nutrient density by including a therapeutic shake in their protocol. And then I usually give some kind of a, a Chinese tonic. And so the patient walks away with about a five page document that explains to them what I want them to do. And then we have my nutritionist who holds their hand and helps them implement all the hard things I've just asked them to do. That sounds wonderful. I mean, I think part of that is um, is having that person see somebody like yourself in the very beginning. Um, yeah. You know, I think we really do ask a lot of people when they get diagnosed because it's obviously often a shock. And as an oncologist, we do want to move right away. It depends on the diagnosis, of course. Mm-hmm. But um, these are all the kind of questions people have. And many times they're not always satisfactorily answered in a clinical setting. Um, you know, I wonder how many times do people get to see you because they would have to think about uh, all the different aspects of their care from the very beginning. Sometimes the medical oncologist probably refers patients to you, but otherwise, um, you know, how often do you see it where somebody comes and sees you right away versus I wish I had seen or thought about these things earlier? 
Well, I, I feel like there's different stages of the cancer journey. And um, so for patients who already choose the kind of medicine that I do, or they're already uh, patients of a functional medicine doctor, they already understand that if they don't tend their health while they go through this, they aren't going to do as well. So there's that subset of people. There are the people that ask the oncologist, well, can I take supplements or does diet matter? And then if I have a close relationship with that oncologist, they can say, well, I can't answer those questions. That's not my expertise, but here's someone you can talk to that I trust to work with. And so I've developed relationships with a lot of oncologists over the duration of my, my career. And so I think the success of integrative oncology is based on relationships that an oncologist has to ultimately feel comfortable with whomever is uh, guiding the patient. And I give patients a lot of nutraceuticals and botanicals, and they take them all the way through their treatment. They, there are oncologists that say, you can't take anything. But once uh, an oncologist has worked with me and my patients, they understand I am not going to interfere with their treatment plan, that I'm going to enhance it and help the patient do better. And so that is about relationships over time, you know. I agree with you. I mean, I think that's about a, a couple of things. One is uh, how cynical you are, perhaps, uh, about these things. I mean, I have colleagues who are very cynical. I think it's also about how firm you are in terms of what we know and don't know. Some people feel very comfortable with... Um, you know, kind of uh, some botanicals, for example, that have historical uses, whereas other folks feel like, okay, if it hasn't been studied in a clinical trial setting uh, strongly with a certain drug, for example, we just shouldn't touch any of it. Uh, I feel like uh, opinions are all over the place on, on that. And that's where the relationship, I think, is important. Yes. Yes. And it's also, I, I have to say that, um, you know, oncologists are individuals as well. And so, you know, I think that you get consensus opinions, you have NCCN guidelines, et cetera, but in real practice, how people view these things and how they view literature, how many uh, of them feel like, okay, I'm going to work with my patient on um, their own approach and, and I'm willing to be flexible on some of these things. There's some people who are, some people who absolutely are not. So I want to talk about that. How do you collaborate with other providers and, and what does that really look like uh, when, it's, when it's working well? So I think that we have to build bridges. That's up to us to build bridges. So if I have a patient and um, the oncologist did not refer them to me, they found me through some other doorway, then after I see the patient, I contact the oncologist and I introduce myself. I explain that I am not trying to treat the patient's cancer. That is not my role that I am providing support for their health while they go through something difficult, that I have expertise in drug-herb, drug-nutrient interactions. I also now can list the top oncologists that I've worked with closely for 30 years and say, if you would like a reference on how I work with patients, here, you can ask these people. And just by dropping those names, I decrease the anxiety of that oncologist. Uh, but I call up surgeons, I call up radiologists, I call up the uh, medical oncologists, and I introduce myself, and I actually send them by fax or by email my treatment plan so that they can see it. And I think that we have to build relationships of trust and mutual respect. And uh, at the beginning, I think it's the, the big misunderstanding, I think, that happens that polarizes us is that a lot of oncologists think that we are trying to treat the cancer, but we're not doing that. The oncologist should treat the cancer and we should help the patient to be well while they go through that process. And so that I think is where there's a lot of misunderstanding and, and miscommunication. Understood. And and I think something that you uh, have on, on your website is you talk about care plans can you talk a little bit about that? How does, how does that work? How do you include integrative oncology into care plans, especially outside academics, you know, whether it's while they're going through chemo or, or like you said, in survivorship or in a chronic setting? Well, let me give you an example of a patient that I, there's a, 
amazing gynecologic oncologist at UCLA that I work closely with. He mostly treats ovarian cancer, uh, typically don't do well, right? They don't, they don't have long lives and they don't have long uh, times between their recurrences. So, and they're mostly stage three and four when they're diagnosed. So when I first started sharing patients with him, a lot of the patients were undergoing really aggressive therapies and uh, were uh, unable to eat and digest their food, were having uh, loss of muscle mass, were extremely anxious, were not sleeping, and uh, had uh, extreme uh, enteritis and mucositis and neuropathies. And so uh, there were a couple of patients I treated simultaneously who started having, being able to gain weight and get their muscle mass back. And then their digestive systems uh, were healed and they could then get nutrients and then they could continue their treatment. And um, that gets the attention of an oncologist whose patient is going down, you know? <laughs> and so there were a couple of patients that I treated simultaneously of this one doctor and he ended up calling me up and asking me to talk to him a little bit more about my rationale and my toolbox. And now we collaborate on almost every patient. So let everybody do what they're good at, you know, and in service to the patient, right? In service to the patient. Absolutely. And so um, you have to be courageous and, and I have high risk tolerance. But I also know what I'm talking about. And I can give the oncologist my rationale and explain why I am asking for what I'm asking for, recommending certain things. And I think that once an oncologist hears that I can speak their language, I understand their drugs and their treatments and how it fits in with what I do, that inspires more confidence and trust in the oncologist. But ultimately, it's whether the patients have good outcomes. Right. And and I, I, I know you've talked about this before. It, some of it is, is short-term mitigation of, of side effects, and some of it is, is more long-term. Um, can you give us some examples of how you might approach, uh, you know, something that's more short-term versus kind of a long-term uh, approach to the care of, of somebody's uh, long-term side yeah, effects? Well, you know, a short-term thing might be uh, radiodermatitis, you know. So how are we going to help the skin repair more quickly? The things that are being done, even more forward-thinking uh, radio-oncology clinics don't work very well. So uh, I, have, I have other tools to offer. Uh, I think one of the, the big areas is really promoting the uh, functioning and repair of the digestive system so that patients can be replete in their nutrients. Uh, that is not really addressed in the oncology setting, but it's so important to how well a patient does. So I have strategies for uh, nutrient density for patients. I develop uh, therapeutic shakes that I will put some uh, extra amino acids and uh, Chinese tonic herbs into. And these are insurance policies for nutrient density and inflammation management and repair of the microbiome so that the patient can actually maintain nutritional status, muscle mass, body weight, and, and not feel so weak. And uh, so it's, it's simple from my, from my side, it's simple, but it's a big gap in the care that the patient receives in an oncology setting. Well, especially post-treatment. I, I mean, you know... During treatment, during treatment also. So tell me a little bit about that, you know, because during treatment, I find that, um, you know, as an integrative oncologist, I, I tend to be more conservative during treatment. And mm -hmm. then after treatment, if you talk to patients, they often feel, you know, like they got all this intense follow-up and then suddenly they have continued symptoms like fatigue or what have you, but they don't know what to do about it. So I, I, I find that that's especially a... a uh, an area where we need more um, assistance? I think that certainly after the oncologist is done with the aggressive treatment, uh, some of the handcuffs are taken off of me because uh, then the oncologist is so worried about interactions. But if you're doing chemotherapy, for the most part, your drugs are active for about four or five days, maybe. And then we have a week or two or two and a half weeks 
where we're not worried about interactions and then we can do more. So uh, in my treatment plans, I'll often withhold uh, a number of supplements during uh, that first infusion week. And then uh, I'll have a week or two in which I can put things in that help the patient's liver function, help to repair their digestive tract, help to decrease some of the oxidative stress that is giving them neuropathy, uh, help them with fatigue. You know, the primary cause of ongoing fatigue in cancer patients is actually elevated inflammatory cytokines. And so we can help with that so the patient has a better quality of life because it's better manage their inflammation during this period of time. The long-term side effects uh, oncologists don't help their patients at all. So uh, I think that patients should have access to resources for uh, repair and restoration of normal healthy function after treatment. The really long-term side effects, and the great researcher on that is Patty Gans at UCLA, and um, particularly with breast cancer patients, but the really long-term side effects that don't get addressed are fatigue and cognitive changes and ongoing neuropathies. Uh, and then we have to realize that all the treatments disrupt the microbiome. And so who's rebuilding the patient's microbiome after they have therapy? These are just so basic fundamental things. Uh, who's going to prevent the patient from having ongoing sarcopenia? And so uh, what about the diabetic patient? Is there, if they're given lots of steroids during their treatment, they're in bad shape when they are done with their treatment. So how are we going to help those patients? What about the uh, autoimmune patient who's now more inflamed? And so we need to, to have a really good survivorship care. And that has to be a health model. I agree. I agree. And and uh, one of the things that you do is you you measure biomarkers. I know that you have training in functional medicine as well. And I'm I'm really interested in this whole area because, um, you know, our whole medical system, part of the backbone is is testing and trying and especially in oncology, we're getting into this whole uh, area of precision care when it comes to cancer care. And uh, I don't feel like there's a tremendous amount of precision in integrative oncology right now. A lot of it is symptom-based. A lot of it is, uh, you know, how individual providers assess patients. Even yeah. in TCM, I would argue that there's a lot of that. So can you tell me a little bit about how you use biomarkers, uh, how you use functional medicine testing as well, um, how you share that with the oncologist and uh, how this kind of carries uh, forward in your care? What do you measure, yeah. et cetera? So um, I have to give uh, respect and gratitude to Dwight McKee, who's my mentor for many years and really teaching me a lot of this part of it. So uh, we know that the tumor microenvironment is a signaling environment and it's also a feedback environment. And so we can measure certain things. So where we have handholds, we should measure things. And so I track uh, glycemic control. I look at hemoglobin A1C, fasting insulin and, and fasting blood sugars. I track inflammation markers. I look at CRP, uh, sed rate, IL-6, IL-8, IL-1B1. Uh, I want to know what's happening. There was a really interesting study at UCLA on cancer patients who have uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms for uh, TNF-alpha, IL-6, and IL-1B1, and that there's a subset of patients that you can predict will have more inflammation, more fatigue, and more uh, uh, adverse effects that are pro-inflammatory um, than an another subset of patients. So you could be prepared for those patients, understanding they're going to be more inflamed from the treatment and take longer time to recover and maybe be in a population of patients that have more long-term adverse effects. Uh, I look at clotting factors. I just track uh, D-dimer and fibrinogen and then look at platelets and white blood cells and inflammatory markers because this isn't a, a whole biosystem approach. It's uh, looking at the ecology of the patient. And so there is a subset of patients who develop hypercoagulation more than other patients. And those patients should be managed. The oncologist is of course aware that this is part of cancer physiology, but they are afraid to use the, the drugs because they're so strong. But in 
uh, botanical medicine and nutraceutical medicine, we have mild anticoagulants that can just take back off from that severe hypercoagulation and keep that patient from being among the 40% of cancer patients that has a thrombotic event. And so I track that and I bring it to the attention of the oncologist. I had a patient in my office who had a, a port in her arm and there was a, a chain of blood clots below her port when she came into my office. And I got on the phone, speakerphone, with the patient in the office, called the oncologist and said, this is what I have in my office with your patient and I want to send her over to be anticoagulated. And so um, I see the patient more than the oncologist sees the patient. Mm. So that patient didn't have to have an event and so um, that's an example of collaborative relationships where the oncologist was grateful to me to identify that before there was uh, an emergency room admission. And so um, I think that we can really make a difference. I also track the nutrients. I look at red blood cell magnesium because we know that a lot of uh, a lot of chemo agents deplete magnesium, and this is where patients get into trouble. And um, because magnesium is so important to mitochondrial function, and uh, patients feel profoundly fatigued when their magnesium is depleted. Also, um, interested in protecting the nephron because we know that very pro oxidative treatments damage the nephron as well as the neurons. And so, I want to know which patients are suffering in that way. Um, I don't, uh, after they're done with treatment, I'll look at their microbiome, but there's no point to do it in the middle of treatment because it's just being disrupted all the time. Uh, I'm interested in some of the genetic and genomic traits. I want to know if a patient's a poor methylator. Uh, we know that patients with certain COMT, uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms, are more at risk for cognitive impairment. Uh, we know that patients who have uh, certain SNPs will make them more uh, at risk for super inflammation during their treatment. So if I really know something about the patient, so I'll often just have them do um, a, a, a genetic test and just look at their detoxification and their methylation SNPs. So they have a sense of how they're going to do with toxic treatments and inflammatory processes. And just curious, I mean, are, are most of these kind of patients just pay for the tests themselves or do you get insurance uh, coverage for them? Uh, well, in California, I'm a primary care provider. So even though my license is under acupuncture and doctor of oriental medicine, I am a primary care provider in my state and I can therefore order labs on patients. And so I would say about a third of my patients get reimbursed. If I don't think, like uh, Medicare doesn't cover my services. So if I have a patient I want to order a lot of labs on, then I'll ask their physician to order it so they get Medicare reimbursement. You know, or if the patient is, is in an HMO or something like that, I'll try and get one of their medical doctors to place the order. But that can only happen because of relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, that, that gets a little sticky because some people are willing to do that and some people are very uncomfortable. Right, right, um, right. So, you know, do you, how often do you track these labs? Like you mentioned CRP. Every three, every three months. Every three months. Okay, Every three that months. helps. Unless there's something acute going on and there's a reason to measure it. Like vitamin D changes really slowly. So there's no reason to check it every month because it just goes up really slowly even if you're taking high oral doses. Uh, so I have goals. When I do these biomarkers, I have goals for my patients of what I think an optimized physiology looks like. An optimized physiology that creates an environment inhospitable to uh, carcinogenesis and progression. And so I want my patients to meet certain goals on these labs. And so I want their CRP to be below 1.0. I want their vitamin D to be 75. I have goals for my patients. And so I'm tracking every three months to see if my interventions are actually achieving those goals as well. I mean, I, I don't necessarily use CRP that way, but I, I you know, I've, I've read articles where CRP obviously can be, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a factor in, in, uh, many of the symptoms that you talked about. How do you, in your experience, let's just focus on CRP. You know, cancer patients, cancer is inflammatory. 
many of them are going to have uh, elevated CRP, depending on the diagnosis especially. They're going through treatment. How how do you feel like you can assess their CRP and you know modify it when maybe some of that is related to their treatment, maybe some of that is related to what's going on in the cancer? How do you assess that and, and, and use it? Well, in two ways. Because not every patient metabolizes drugs the same way, because not every patient has the same inflammatory landscape before they get cancer, um, we can just help patients do better by modulation. Uh, of course, it's a given. The treatments are pro-inflammatory. The disease is pro-inflammatory. But to what degree is the patient in front of me? Uh, is their CRP 20 or is it 5? And That's a big difference. And so if I can uh, help modulate during treatment, the patient will do better they'll, and they'll also feel better. However, I think that these biomarkers are also useful as a way of having a lens into the, the microscopic cancer terrain because the follow-up uh, that patients get is macroscopic. By the time you see something on a scan, you have at least a three millimeter lesion with billions of cells in it. Uh, by the time you see a tumor marker, which is a blunt measuring tool, uh, elevate, something's been going on for quite a long time. So how can we get a lens into what's going on to a patient who's finished their treatment? So there's a storm of these biomarkers that together elevate and make a, a pattern. And so if I see coagulation factors and inflammation factors go up simultaneously, I infer that something microscopic might be going on with them. And with my toolbox, I can intervene. Uh, I also track circulating tumor cells. And most oncologists go, well, what am I going to do with this information? I don't treat microscopic disease. So it's, I think the adoption of circulating tumor cells hasn't really uh, been uh, well accepted because the treatment model is for macroscopic disease. And so if you can monitor microscopic changes that lead you to think possibly there is microscopic tumor activity happening in this patient, then the toolbox is naturopathic medicine. That's where we, that's where we can intervene and help a patient turn that around. You mentioned uh, the microbiome. Um, so, you know, you have a background in functional medicine as well. Uh, tell me what, what you, how you use functional medicine, especially for that person, and how you how maybe, uh, you know, can help somebody with their microbiome once they're done with treatment. We know how important the microbiome is to so many aspects of our health. But in the context of cancer, inflammation management and uh, immune modulation uh, and detoxification are, are where the, the impact is the greatest outside of, of colorectal cancers. Uh, so the microbiome has systemic aspects. And, and also in the last uh, year or so, there were a couple of studies published on differences in the microbiome and in response to immunotherapies. So we, the oncologist has no training in microbiome health. Uh, and so uh, as we learn more, we'll all beginner's mind with microbiome because we just don't know enough. And I think we've been fairly unskillful because giving giant doses of, of microorganisms actually creates its own imbalances. And we've also learned that when you give oral probiotics, most of it just passes right through. So the key is how do you get healthy organisms to colonize in the gut and, and then change the ecology of the gut. And that really has to do with prebiotics and having the right fibers and short-chain fatty acids that allow healthy microbiome to flourish. And so we're just learning how to do that skillfully. But we can see, for example, uh, the ratio of the different phyla of organisms that are in the gut. Uh, we can see if there are pathogens in the gut. We can see if the uh, immune uh, response in the gut is uh, severely pro-inflammatory or not. We can uh, understand if a person is, for example, having dermatitis as an uh, ongoing problem that 
the gut and the barrier in the gut are probably the problem. And so um, by looking at the microbiome, we can do individualized interventions for patients. Those tests are expensive. And I've been doing microbiome studies for 25 years on my patients. And I have learned that doing the test is helpful, but often it doesn't change the treatment plan very much. And so if a patient doesn't have money, I just make an educated guess about what's going to help because you can't hurt someone doing this. And so uh, some, for the patient who doesn't have a lot of money, uh, we can just put a health plan together. And then if we're not seeing the results we want, we can test afterwards and see what we miss. But uh, restoring a healthy microbiome has certain fundamental principles that all patients need. And as modern people, we know that we're handicapped in, in, with our microbiome already. And so Gerald uh, uh, Mullen at Johns Hopkins is an expert in microbiome studies. And I was at a lecture of his where he showed the microbiome of a Maasai person in Tanzania versus a modern person. And we're just handicapped by our diet and our modern medicine. And we just don't have enough microbiomes, period, you know, uh, microorganisms. Diversity, period. right. So, yeah. So um, we can just use basic principles of health to rebuild patients. We know we've wiped out their microbiome. Tell me, um, you know, I think functional medicine obviously is a, is a burgeoning field and is popular among patients, many patients. Um, tell me what the advantages of getting training in functional medicine, where you see this kind of as an advantage and, and how useful it is in integrative oncology. Uh, I think that anything, like we all take a deep dive into our training, whatever it is, and that puts us in a silo. <laughs> inherently. And um, modern medical training is reductionist. And so I think to get training in whole biosystems thinking is useful uh, because it that's what allows you to build a person's health. And uh, in functional medicine in particular, there's this idea of looking for root cause. Uh, that is embedded inside of Ayurvedic medicine. It's embedded in traditional naturopathic medicine. It's embedded in traditional Chinese medicine already. Uh, but it's an important point of view to understand the whole. And that is not the training you get in medicine. So anything that gives you another way of thinking about your patient, I think is important. And then um, if you take a deep dive into functional medicine training, then you have a really wonderful toolbox of assessment tools and interventions that you can use with your patient. Well, let's transition to Chinese medicine. You know, you're an expert in traditional Chinese medicine. Um, how do you bring East and West, ancient and modern together? I think traditional Chinese medicine, obviously in California, it's quite popular and I think better accepted than in many other parts of the U.S. especially. But... Um, uh, you know, for for me, I think that it's, again, this kind of uh, relationship-built kind of uh, practice, because those of us who don't understand traditional Chinese medicine, uh, it's difficult for us to understand what's going on. Even if we understand the concepts, many of the herbs are written in Chinese, and I find it personally difficult to understand sometimes uh, exactly what's what somebody's taking when they see a, a traditional Chinese uh, practitioner. So tell me a little bit about how you make this work, how you collaborate, um, how does it translate? So number one, there is traditional Chinese medicine, which is full of esoteric language, and there is modern Chinese medicine. And I have my foot more in the latter. And modern Chinese medicine is very science-based. And we have lots of studies and research. And now we understand what the herbs do. And so uh, we understand what some of the points do. So I can uh, explain to a physician that I'm needling this certain point because here's a study that shows that it increases their white cells. And so um, I, I like to stand, I train physicians so I have to speak in language that physicians understand, and I also have to be able to defend what I do. So I'm more oriented to modern Chinese medicine, but it is informed by the beautiful 
elegant concepts of traditional Chinese medicine, which is about how do you restore balance? That's the whole paradigm of Chinese medicine is where's the center? Where's balance? How can you describe the imbalance and how can you remedy that and bring the person back to balance? And in traditional medicine, the metaphors are all nature metaphors. They're very beautiful metaphors. And so they're useful to patients because patients understand nature and that we are part of nature. And so that those laws and principles apply to them. So that's useful to the patient to uh, inspire uh, compliance. Uh, but to for a physician, I need to be able to explain what I'm doing. And so uh, with herbal medicine, I think we have to really rely on a lot of studies and research that we have. And uh, there are different categories of herbs. And I think Chinese medicine is just full of gold for, for our patients. And the class of herbs called tonics are really like concentrated foods. They're not like pharmaceuticals. And so I think there's a lot of confusion about what herbs are and are not. So the tonic herbs are the herbs I use the most and they can be taken every day safely, just the way you can eat a salad every day. And so uh, these are typically plants that concentrate nutrients out of the soil that food plants do not. And so they contain a lot of micronutrients and other types of molecules that are helpful to health. And so uh, they're very, very safe. It's really hard to hurt somebody with tonics. And so that's mostly what I use. And then uh, my first love is botanic medicine, but I also am a scientist. And so I want to understand mechanism of action. And I, if I understand mechanism of action, I can also understand where there's gonna be drug interactions. And so I can understand where there will be toxicities. And so I can more skillfully then use plants as medicine. You know, um, in a lot of cancer centers, uh, acupuncture is uh, is practiced more mm -hmm. so than all the elements of uh, traditional Chinese medicine. Yes, and this is a, an, a, a you know a, a complex area. I'm just curious about your opinion. I mean, because in many places, uh, acupuncturists are just asked to do uh, acupuncture and yes. not get into all these other areas. And um, I know that's not technically how acupuncturists are trained, but that's how they often are asked to practice in a cancer center. And I, I think for, for those practitioners, it's often um, uh, a transition. It's maybe sometimes uh, awkward for them. But at the same time, I know that in especially uh, some of the larger academic cancer centers, that's what people are asking acupuncturists to do. Okay, just treat the neuropathy. How do you feel about all that? Um. Acupuncture itself is a profound and powerful technology. And acupuncture is simple. Herbs are complicated. Acupuncture is simple. And we have the capacity to offer patients a therapy which uh, can really change their experience. Let's just say that all we're doing by referring patient to an acupuncturist is giving them the opportunity be, to be touched in a way that isn't harming them. Because most of the treatments cancer patients receive are traumatic. So they get to have an experience as part of their journey that's nourishing and soothing and healing and intimate and tender. That is important. Forget what acupuncture does. <laughs> That's just important to give the patient an experience like that in the midst of a series of traumatic events. And uh, I think it's well accepted that the cancer patient suffers in many ways that the post-traumatic stress pa patient suffers because they keep getting these small traumas. So acupuncture in and of itself, because of the nature of the relationship, helps the patient through that. But furthermore, think of the things that get disrupted by treatment. We can support immunity. We can support digestion. We can support repair. We can help them have a normal sleep cycle. We can help them with their pain and their hot flashes. So uh, even though that is just symptom management, 
Chinese medicine, acupuncture itself is very restorative of normal function. Acupuncture also helps with autonomic regulation. And that's very important to patients who are under duress. And so those patients who have better autonomic regulation and can modulate their stress and are more resilient are going to do better. I guess what I'm getting at, though, is, is you have a practice that's outside, you know, of a private practice. And you talked mm-hmm, about collaborating, mm-hmm. etc. And And many people have just different rules that they have to live by. And, you know, um, they may be asked, in, essentially, to, you know, confine themselves to just practice acupuncture, or, you know, vi- whatever, yes, whatever. They're, I, how do, how do understood. you, what's I your understood. advice to those that, individuals? It has, it has value, because those patients will do better. Those patients will all do better who have the benefit of acupuncture because acupuncture uh, is working on every layer of the person every time you put a needle in. In the traditional medicine, there are uh, three layers that we say are addressed by Chinese medicine. The first is the qi, which is just the vital energy of, of life, the difference between a piece of wood and a living uh, organism. There's the shen, which is the emotional being of the patient. And, and then there is the jing, which there's no English word for, but that's the part of ourselves that's connected to something larger than ourselves. And so every time you put a needle in a point, you are uh, uh, not just treating their neuropathy. You're helping them to be more calm. You're helping them to feel more connected to life. And so it's all happening whether you talk about it explicitly or not, because that is the elegant, beautiful nature of acupuncture. You talked about herbs. I think one of the things that comes up for for me, at least, is is where you got the herbs from. You know, there's been whether it's Ayurveda or traditional Chinese medicine. There's obviously uh, adulterated products where you're not getting what you expect. That happens in other natural products as well. Mm-hmm. So how? you know, how how do you know you're getting what you're supposed to get? How do you make sure that the oncologist is, uh, you know, uh, trusting that their patient's getting high quality? I mean, obviously they trust you and there's a personal relationship, but, you know, I think that um, that's also part of the skepticism that people may have is they don't know if their patient's getting exactly what they, what they thought they were, you know, they were getting. Yeah. Yes. So, um, I think that is an absolutely reasonable concern. And I used to be in the nutraceutical industry. And so I think I probably know more about supply chains and manufacturers than most clinicians. Uh, But it is, I think, the responsibility of anyone prescribing herbs and nutritional supplements to their patients to make sure that the patient is getting a safe and pure product and then what is on the label is exactly what is in the capsule inside that bottle and that the uh, raw materials have not been contaminated and that there's good manufacturing practices and assays after manufacturing, proper storage, all of that matters. And I talk to my patients about that and that when I make a treatment plan, I tell them exactly what brand to use because I have vetted companies to be sure that the products I'm prescribing meet my standards for the patient. That is not true of all clinicians, but it's part of why I think uh, patients should be educated and, um, and clinicians should be educated. So in the course that I teach in my training, I talk about that to clinicians because it's not really part of training. Can you tell us, uh, I was going to ask you, I mean, there's so many things that we could uh, talk about that obviously we can't get into great detail about. You have a course. Can you tell us a little bit about your course? Yes. um, I founded an institute called the American Institute of Integrative Oncology, and that's my platform for training clinicians. And that is really, uh, it's an online self-paced training, and um, it introduces these concepts and uh, how to build a treatment plan, how to assess patients and how to keep them healthy and well. It is not a course about how to treat cancer. Uh, It is really primarily for the frontline clinician, the primary care clinician, uh, although I have a lot of oncology nurses in it, I have radiologists in it, I have oncologists, but mostly their primary care, functional medicine, acupuncture, nutritionists, 
those types of clinicians who uh, patients are looking for a health model after they're done with their cancer treatment. And there should be an army of well-trained, knowledgeable clinicians. And there's no training like this. If you went to any um, healthcare medical training you and you didn't specialize in oncology, you got a really short look at oncology. And so you don't really know very much about it. So my argument to clinicians is, let's say you're a primary care clinician and somebody who had breast cancer 10 years ago comes into your practice. How do you take their history differently? How do you monitor their symptoms differently? If they're complaining to you of fatigue, it's probably not their thyroid. It's probably they're still myelosuppressed and their bone marrow just never really came back. So you need to understand how to treat cancer survivors and how to help people recover from their cancer treatments and how to be part of a, a team of clinicians. And so quite often I'll have patients who uh, come to me 10 years after their successful cancer treatment say, I still have neuropathy. Right. I still have fatigue. I still have cognitive impairment. Can you help me? So uh, there needs to be clinicians that can rebuild health and also to understand how to take a history of a patient who's a cancer survivor or who's a cancer patient with cancer as a chronic illness. Those patients need to be, uh, their intake needs to be different and their assessment needs to be different. We need to follow them differently and have a different toolbox for them. And there's just no training in that. So I've developed a system called the Outsmart Cancer System that I figured out how to teach. And so uh, I can pass it on. Well, thank you for that. And I, I want to ask you, um, you know, it's especially relevant now with, uh, you know, the, the pandemic, the worldwide pandemic for COVID-19, but even otherwise, um, you know, I think we're, we're many of us are, are being taxed, uh, if we're healthcare practitioners, many individuals around the country, around the world really um, are, are, you know, maybe staying in their homes, know somebody who's been sick or concerned or stressed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, tell us how, you know, as both healthcare practitioners, as individuals, we should, you know, maybe care for ourselves, especially given all your, your training, your, your experience, what should we be doing in this moment for ourselves, for our patients, uh, for each other? Well, I think everyone is quite stressed right now by the situation. And I think we must remain in a health model uh, because we have to stay healthy if we're going to be a resource to our patients and our communities. And a lot of that goes to how we live. Uh, physicians don't really have great self-care for the most part. We Our training makes us work 12-hour days and sit in a chair for most of that time and kind of ignore our own needs. And that's sort of what we're rewarded for. So we have to be in a health model. But also, if we are a role model to our patients, we get better compliance. So just the basics, don't sit in a chair all day, get up every hour and move around, make sure you get enough sleep, make sure you keep your nutritional status optimized, because that's what's going to give you more resistance, going to keep all your barriers intact and help you to be more resistant to invasion of an infection, stay hydrated so your mucous membranes don't dry out. I mean, just really basic things. Um, but I, again, I feel that uh, I have high compliance with my patients because I walk the talk. I actually live the way that I ask them to live. And so that's very powerful. And the tendency right now, I think, is we're all going to be spread thin. And so we have to take little breaks. We have to step out of being uh, in uh, a stress physiology and take 10 breaths and walk outside and look at the sky and remember that we have to drop into the, the other side of our nervous system if we're going to uh, be a resource and be able to recover and not be vulnerable. Really basic things, really basic things. And I think uh, isolation is a stress also. And so that we now have technology that can connect us and to make sure we reach out to each other and as medical professionals to uh, have support and uh, empathy for each other and share our wins and our understandings. I just 
watched an amazing webinar last night that gave me much more insight into how to manage the pro-inflammatory aspects of uh, this disease. And so if we just uh, keep ourselves and our patients in a physiology where inflammation can't get out of control, that's going to protect people even who get infected to not go into an extreme cytokine storm potentially. So uh, we have an amazing toolbox in uh, being able to modulate immunity and physiology and inflammation. I think that's important. But I think bottom line, nutrient density, rest, hydration, and movement, uh, we cannot forget those for ourselves because that's what's going to allow us to continue to function at a high level. Well, thank you for that advice. Um, I, I just think you're a fascinating, very interesting person. I, you know, I was reading um, your website and your bio, and uh, like me, you you really like to travel, which is something that we can't do right now. I'm just curious. Right. Um, you, you know, uh, your bio says that you you've hiked uh, and uh, mountains all over the world. What was your favorite? Um, what was your favorite mountain that you ever climbed? Oh, I really loved Bhutan and the Himalayas. I, um, I really, really think it's an extraordinary culture uh, and landscape. Uh, that was my favorite place. I also hiked the Ngorogoro Crater in uh, Tanzania, and that was really extraordinary to be in a place that still belongs to the animals and to sort of see our place in nature. You know. That's great. Well, I would love to go to Bhutan someday. So uh, thanks. Thanks a lot for joining us today. You gave us a lot of wonderful information um, and uh, I really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me. Take care.